discussion with Dr. Farid Holakuru. I'm your host, Dr. Farid Hulakwi, and I'll be with you for the next two hours here on Radio Hamra. Won't be taking any calls today because I'm very happy to have a guest, Dr. Mark Solms, who I'll introduce to you shortly. You might remember Dr. Mark Solms's book, The Hidden Spring, A Journey to the Source of Consciousness, which I discussed a few weeks ago, uh, but very happy to have him on the show tonight, today to discuss the book and also learn more about the wonderful work that he's doing. But let me introduce you to him first. Professor Mark Solms is best known for his discoveries regarding the brain mechanisms of dreaming and for his efforts to integrate psychoanalytic methods and concepts with those of the neurosciences. He was educated at a Petroria Boys School and the University of Witwatersrand Witwater in Johannesburg. He left South Africa in 1989 to undertake psychoanalytic training at the Institute of Psychoanalysis in London while he lectured in the neurosurgery department of the Royal London Hospital and in the psychology department of University College London. In 2002, he returned to South Africa, where he is currently director of neuropsychology in the Neuroscience Institute of the University of Cape Town at Groot Schuur Hospital. He is an A1-rated researcher from the National Research Foundation and a member of the Academy of Sciences of South Africa. He has received numerous honors, such as the Sigourney Prize, the Outstanding Scientific Achievement Award of the International Psychoanalytical Association, and honorary fellowship of the American College of Psychiatrists. He is a training director of the South African Psychoanalytical Association, of which he was the founding president, director of the science department of the American Psychoanalytic Association, and research chair of the International Psychoanalytical Association. He has published 350 neuroscientific and psychoanalytic journals, articles, and book chapters, and he has authored eight books. The Brain and the Inner World was translated into 13 languages. His collected papers were published as The Feeling Brain, and a new book, which I was just dis discussing, uh, The Hidden Spring, A Journey to the Source of Consciousness, which he describes as a culmination of his life's work, appeared in February 2021. He's also the editor and translator of the forthcoming revived standard edition of the complete psychological works of Sigmund Freud and complete neuroscientific works of Sigmund Freud, four volumes. Uh, Dr. Solms, thank you so much for joining me today. It's a great pleasure to be here. Thank you. Thank you. And we apologize. We were having some technical difficulties on our side. We appreciate you being patient with us, and we're glad to have you on the air. Thank you so much. Fine. All right. So, um, you know, in reading your book, I had a, I really enjoyed it. And to this day, when I'm working even with clients, I recognize that it affects the way I approach human beings and the human experience. And we can get into the book and the details of, uh, what you mean by the hidden spring and uh, looking at consciousness. But what I think would be interesting is looking at your your background. As I described, uh, there's a neuroscientific background, but also a psychoanalytic background, which I think shows in your work quite clearly. Um, if you don't mind talking a bit about that experience of getting into neuroscience and, and as you describe in the book, being a little disillusioned by what you found what was missing in that study. Yes, um, gladly. The, 
the most interesting thing about the brain uh, is that it feels like something to be a brain. Mm -hmm. Um, The brain has subjective experience. This is absolutely remarkable. There's no other bodily organ. uh, Actually, there's no other physical thing in the known universe that has that capacity. So that's what attracted me to the brain. Mm -hmm. And yet, when I trained, um, which was in the 1980s, the early 1980s, Uh, What we were taught was about all of the remarkable information processing capacities of this object, uh, the brain, uh, sort of these cognitive um, uh, functional mechanistic diagrams of how language and memory and perception and skilled movement and so on um, are instantiated in the brain. But what was utterly lacking was any sense of the subject, you know, the subjective experiencing feeling mind. Um, And, you know, that's the essence of what uh, is so miraculously uh, fascinating about the brain is that it has subjective experiences. And that was sort of airbrushed out. Mm -hmm. And when I spoke to my professors about, you know, these subjective uh, felt uh, uh, aspects of mental life in relation to the brain, They literally advised me, you must remember this was in the 1980s, they literally advised me not to ask questions like that. They said it is bad for your career. You should should ask proper scientific questions, um, which fitted within the paradigms of the time. And so it was out of a sheer sense of frustration uh, that I um, shifted uh, to the other side, as it were. Not that I ever gave up Uh, my uh, home in neuroscience and in neuropsychology in particular. But I thought that psychoanalysis, whatever its shortcomings may be, at least there they study the mind as lived experience. Mm -hmm. And so I thought perhaps if I can train um, on that side of the fence, acquire uh, a knowledge of those concepts and those methods and then import them into neuroscience, Perhaps in this way I could overcome uh, the, 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 the really disappointing shortcomings of the neuropsychology of that time. So that's what I did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I think it's, it's fascinating to hear you talk about how these different schools of thought, the, the psychoanalytic and the neuroscientific, especially at that time, were almost at, at ends with each other or, or were not exactly the biggest fans of one another. And so in studying both and, and being part of both circles, I'm sure at times that was complicated, to say the least, of being parts of both of those worlds. Were there any experiences of, uh, of what that was like, of people from one, one school of thought not being happy that you were studying the other and vice versa? Uh, absolutely. At, um, the the uh, suspicion, to say the <laughs> least, if not uh, antagonism, cut yeah. both ways. Um, so I was, uh, by day, I was in the uh, Department of Neurosurgery at the Royal London Hospital, and by night, I was I- in the Institute of Psychoanalysis in London, and it really was a Jekyll and Hyde existence. Mm. My neuroscientific colleagues said that for me to study psychoanalysis was like an astronomer studying astrology. (laughs) You know, we just don't do that. Um, And uh, as I said, the antipathy cut both ways. 
because um, although I turned to psychoanalysis in order to uh, uh, become acquainted with the methods and concepts of a discipline that took subjectivity seriously, nevertheless, uh, there also were and remain significant problems with psychoanalysis Mm -hmm. in terms of its uh, failure to uh, incorporate um, advances in the other mental sciences. Uh, It it really has, uh, until recently, uh, been woefully out of touch with what we've learned um, in experimental uh, cognitive neuroscience. So so I saw it, uh, uh, as as I became acquainted with psychoanalysis, I saw it as equally uh, my task. It was not just a matter of bringing the psyche into neuropsychology, in other words, bringing the lived subject of the mind uh, into cognitive neuroscience, but also to bring a little more scientific rigor to bear, experimental methodology to bear on psychoanalytic theories and, and, and hypotheses. Yeah, I, I think as is generally the case when we try to separate uh, schools of thought, fields of knowledge or understanding, both sides hurt, but when we bring them together, that's when we actually can really learn and, and see things with uh, new eyes, so to speak. And I remember myself being at UCLA in my undergraduate studies and the ways that professors would talk about psychoanalysis and Freud was, you know, as a as a, a joke to kind of laugh about it because there was this idea that research has to be done on these certain things and we can only study these certain things and everything else is just, you know, uh, quackery or just ideas, but there's nothing behind them. But what I think is fascinating in the work that you've done is actually shown that a lot of what Freud describes or discovered very much is being supported by neuroscientific research and theories, which I thought was very interesting how you wove that into the book as well. So uh, Freud, in a way, has had renaissances at different times, but I think that the work that you've described shows that there was much more to what he was saying than just these empty theories. There was really some weight behind it and some understanding. And you even quote one of his papers that he I think in essence abandoned because he I think he I guess he couldn't figure it out or get to some kind of conclusion but that you say has a lot of insights that based on what we can now understand about the brain uh, make a lot of sense. Well that's correct I think many people don't realize that Freud was a very highly regarded neuroscientist. Mm-hmm. Um, in the 1870s and 1880s, he was really pretty much at the forefront of his field, both as a neuroanatomist and as uh, a neuropsychologist, although at that point that name didn't, that word didn't exist. But he did important work on aphasia, on the brain mechanisms of language. And then he moved on to these more complex mental functions uh, of the kind that um, we study uh, uh, under the rubric of psychopathology. And the, the, the fact was, there just were not neuroscientific methods. Uh, there was no neuroscientific technology available for somebody to study these functions um, from an anatomical and physiological point of view. So it was a strategic step. It was a, an, a, a necessary uh, uh, interim step if you wanted to study mental functions in the 1890s, then you had to use purely psychological methods to do so. As I say, I don't think many people realize that Freud was a neuroscientist uh, who was trying to study these things neuroscientifically 
and only moved to purely psychological methods because there was an absence mm-hmm. um, of anything else available. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, you, you're right to say that, I mean, the same thing happened to me when I studied, um, uh, when I was an undergraduate student, I, I was also told, um, you know, all of these jokes and uh, parodies about Freud and, you know, and the pseudoscience of psychoanalysis and so on. It's very easy to um, to to just that, to parody uh, serious efforts. One can do the same in reverse. You know, if you look at what the behaviorists were doing mm-hmm. um, in, the, in the mid-20th century, uh, literally excluding the, the, the psyche from psychology, you know, excluding anything to do with the lived experience of the mind, not only methodologically, but literally denying their existence, saying that these things, you know, subjective experience... Uh, is is a kind of flotsam. It, 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 it doesn't really exist. You know that that's patently absurd, and we can we can thereby easily parody uh, what the behaviorists were doing, and at, and in so doing, overlook their enormous achievements because they really did bring psychology into experimental science, brought to bear a rigor um, that, that we've all uh, benefited from uh, in the decades that followed. And, you know, laid bare the laws of learning um, and thereby demonstrated that the mind, just like any other part of nature, is subject to, to, to natural laws. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm more interested in taking the best of, of uh, these sincere efforts uh, to grapple with this incredibly complicated problem of the mind. Um, and, uh, and, and, and not to discard any, I mean, we need all the help we can get when it comes to trying to solve these problems. Yeah. But I, I need to emphasize for it, for me, my own life's work has not been a matter of proving Freud right or wrong. <laughs> right, yeah. I'm, I'm much more interested in finishing the job. I think that the questions that Freud was grappling with were the right questions mm-hmm. um, for, for us to be asking. And uh, I, I'm, I'm interested in carrying on doing the best we can to answer those questions with the tools we have available today, mm-hmm. um, if you know what I mean. Yes, absolutely. And, and uh, in, in the book, which I, you, you outline a lot of the work that you've done, you are grappling with these big questions. One of them is what's called the, the hard question about consciousness, which we can definitely get into. I did want to mention uh, something when you were you're talking about behaviorism and I hadn't recognized this till you brought up the point in the book. They tried to take feeling out of everything. That was, you know, their feeling wasn't even something to talk about or look at. But as you described, the way punishment and reinforcement is described includes feeling essentially embedded in it because we're saying when you reinforce something, you do something to the organism or, you know, reward them in a way that feels good. But then they try to take the feeling out of it. But we we really can't do that. And any one of us could recognize that what feels good to someone might not feel good to someone else, which is why reinforcement has to be uh, specific to the individual. But really to try to remove feeling out of it doesn't even make sense. But they tried to. But it wasn't until I saw the way you explained it that I recognized, yeah, I never even realized that feeling was embedded in their definitions uh, without trying to call it feeling. Yes. They, they use the words uh, reward and punishment, right. um, which for any sort of lay person uh, clearly evoke feelings in mm-hmm. our minds. You know, mm-hmm. what, is, what is a reward um, if it doesn't feel good? Uh, and what is a punishment if it doesn't feel bad? 
but it was precisely that that the behaviorists denied. And that was because they were determined to make psychology an objective science, um, and objective things need to be objectively observable, externally observable. So for them, the rewards and the punishments were not something that was felt inside the subject of the mind, but rather something that existed in the stimuli that mm -hmm. evoked um, uh, something if something was applied to the research participant and that increased the behavior that led to that stimulus, uh, then they called that rewarding. And conversely, if it decreased the research subject's um, attraction to the stimulus, then they called it punishing. But the rewarding and punishing properties were thought to reside in the stimulus because mm -hmm. that's the objective thing, the thing you can see. Uh, and, and, and as you've just said, I mean, that's kind of absurd to suggest that the rewarding and punishing properties reside in the stimulus rather than in the in the subject stimulated by those things. Right. Yeah. Um, but that was that was uh, required by by their their methodology. Yeah, and um, I think, and, and this is what I'm saying. When we look at it in the fullness of time, it looks ridiculous. Mm -hmm. um, and the same applies to much of what Freud claimed. Because let's not forget, you know, there was a lot that Freud got horribly wrong. Right. Um, and I'm more interested in building on what they got right, yeah. um, and 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 pulling the pulling those objective methods uh, uh, into into the same task as the subjective methods, um, and uh, and and trying to trying to see the thing from both points of view. Because I say again, the essential feature of the mind uh, is that it is something subjective. It makes it very difficult to do science. Um, on something which is inherently subjective. Uh, and I think that the mistake that the behaviorists made was to think that we need to adjust the object of study to the methods uh, rather than the other way around. Mm. I think that we have to adjust our methods to the object of study. And if we're studying something which is inherently subjective, then we have to somehow, uh, we have to somehow find ways of going about studying subjective experience scientifically. We can't just exclude it because it's difficult. Right. And yeah, it's I think part of nature that it, exists. Yeah, and, and that makes, as you say, the hard question even harder when we uh, approach it in the, the, the wrong way, um, when we're trying to describe what it feels like to be uh, something or some organism, that's the subjective experience. So it has to include the subjective when you're trying to, to study it or understand it. Uh, we're at a commercial break. And I think after the break it would be uh, nice to hear your thoughts. You know, when we look at consciousness, there's been this this uh, drive to find the seat of consciousness or where does consciousness reside. And for most of the study of, of the brain and study of consciousness, people have assumed it has to be in the cortex. And so I would be, love to hear your thoughts on that after the break of the cortical fallacy and then how uh, this doesn't hold a lot of water when we look at the evidence and what, uh, what you see as the source, this hidden spring of consciousness. So again, I'm joined by Dr. Mark Solms. We'll be right back. Joining me today is Dr. Mark Solms, author of The Hidden Spring, A Journey to the Source of Consciousness. Dr. Solms, are you still there? 
Yes, I'm here. All right. So as I mentioned before the break, uh, when we're looking for the, the source of consciousness, for most of the study of, of consciousness, or especially once the brain was being studied even more, the focus was solely on the cortex, that this must be the seat of consciousness, this must be what makes us human, so to speak. Uh, and I think some issues with uh, humans wanting to make sure we are seen as superior to other beings plays a part in this as well. But I, I would love to hear from you about this, the cortical fallacy and how it probably misled us in our journey in, in looking for the source of consciousness and, and what the evidence is that shows that it probably is not the seat of consciousness. Um, yes. Uh, so the, when I trained um, in the 1980s, and the same will have applied 100 years earlier in the 1880s, uh, it's one of the sort of founding principles uh, of neuropsychology that we are studying higher cortical functions. You know, that's sort of synonymous with neuropsychology. This is the mental part of the brain, um, the conscious part of the brain, the cortex. Now, it's a long story as to how it is, mm -hmm. how it happened that we came to this wrong-headed idea. Um, and uh, I, I'll gladly talk about that, but I think that what's more important is, is to just dive straight into the evidence for sure. why that view is wrong. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm very mindful of the fact that most people who know anything about neuroscience will be shocked to hear me saying that the cortex is not the seat of consciousness. Mm -hmm. So that's why I want to get straight into the yeah. evidence um, so, so that uh, we can talk about facts mm -hmm. rather than theories or historical heirlooms sure. that come down to us through the centuries. Um, the, 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 the reasons that people, uh, neuroscientists, give for why the cortex must be the seat of consciousness leaving aside the history, but looking just at the evidence, um, is that if you have damage to the visual cortex, you go blind. You lose visual consciousness. Uh, if you have damage to the somatosensory cortex, then you ha you're at a anesthetic in the part of the body concerned. If you have damage to auditory cortex, you, know, you lose auditory consciousness. You go deaf. So, you know, this is pretty um, straightforward stuff. However, the patient who is, let's say, cortically blind um, or who is anesthetic on one side of their bodies, they are still there. You know, there's still a person there, a subjective sentient being there saying, I'm here, but I can't see. You know, I'm here, but I can't feel on the right-hand side, etc. Mm -hmm. So there's still a sentient, conscious subject of the mind there. So when you ask cognitive neuroscientists, where is the subject who's receiving this visual information or the lack of it and commenting upon it? Now, that's the self. That's really the, the, the being of the mind. Uh, where in the cortex is that located? The, there are two traditional answers. The one is that it's the prefrontal cortex, and the other is that it's the insular cortex. Now, if you look at patients who have no prefrontal cortex, they are not lacking a self. Uh, there's, it's, it's, there's just no evidence that there's no sentient subject home. Um, I report in my book a patient of my own who had absolutely no prefrontal cortex. Um, I show the scans in my book. He's mm -hmm. got no prefrontal cortex as the result of a subarachnoid hemorrhage. 
um, a, a burst aneurysm uh, in his frontal lobes, uh, which was surgically treated and then resulted in lots of sepsis. And one thing led to another. And eventually the prefrontal lobes were just replaced entirely um, with, with these porins, what they're called porencephalic cysts. In other words, just cerebrospinal fluid. There's no frontal cortex there. And uh, I said to this patient, uh, as I report in the book, you know, are you conscious? And he says, yes, of course I am. And then I say, well, according to my colleagues, you shouldn't be. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you mind going through an exercise with me uh, whereby I can test whether you are conscious? And he says, okay. And I say to him, I want you to picture something in your mind's eye and then look at it. Uh, this is clearly a, a conscious uh, act. And he says, okay, he'll do that. So I say, I want you to picture two dogs and one chicken. Imagine in your mind that you're looking at two dogs and one chicken. He says, okay. I say, can you see them? He says, yes, I can. I say, now I want you to count the legs. How many legs in total do you see mm-hmm. uh, among those two dogs and one chicken? And he says, eight, which was a great disappointment to me because, of course, I was expecting him to answer 10. I said, eight. And he said, yes, the dogs ate the chicken. <laughs> so that was wonderful evidence mm-hmm. that he was imagining this scenario. Right. Um, I mean, he even was able to make a joke about it, mm-hmm. uh, that there is clearly a sentient being present there for, in order for him to be able to make that joke. Um, he had to be able to have conscious experience, and he was reporting on it. In the case of the insula, I won't go through the details, but exactly the same thing happens. Uh, Antonio Damasio reported a patient who, due to herpes simplex encephalitis, had absolutely no insular cortex. And he had much the same sort of interaction with his patient as I had with mine, uh, where the patient was clearly able to talk about his his inner experience and kept referring to himself as I, you know, I'm aware that you're aware that I'm aware and saying things like that, uh, which just makes a nonsense of any claim that such a patient does not have a sentient self. So um, if this is the part of the cortex or these are the parts of the cortex where the self is supposed to reside, um, you know, then uh, any prediction arising from those theories um, you know, would be that damage to those parts of the brain must lead to an obliteration of the self, but it doesn't. Mm-hmm. Now, the, 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 the counter-argument is, yeah, but these patients still have plenty of cortex left. You know, they've got, it's not that they've got no cortex. So, you know, the, 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 the self perhaps resides somehow, you know, in the cortex in its totality. And uh, for this reason, I report in my book, cases who have absolutely no cortex, uh, these are children with a condition known as hydranencephaly, um, wh- where the, the word means simply that instead of cortex, they have cerebrospinal fluid. They are born with no cortex, hmm. absolutely no cortex. Um, and I show the evidence that these children are conscious in the sense not only that they go to sleep at night and wake up in the morning, but also that they are emotionally reactive to their environments. They respond with feeling uh, appropriately. Um, If you give them a fright, they startle and they cry. Um, uh, If you place a cuddly soft uh, toy or or, or a baby brother in their lap, they smile and they they coo, they they like it. If you tickle them, they giggle. Uh, If if you frustrate them, they, they arch their backs and fuss. You know, so so uh, all of the behavioral evidence is there. 
uh, that these kids are conscious um, and emotionally responsive, even though they have absolutely no cortex. Now, the cortical theory of consciousness uh, would predict that these patients must at the least be in a vegetative state, uh, in other words, non-responsive, um, if not in a coma. Uh, in fact, I would say that the cortical theory of consciousness requires that these children should be in a coma because the organ of consciousness being gone you know, should mean that consciousness is gone, and that simply is not what we observe. Mm. Um, and I'm not speaking about rarities. You know, This is what we reliably observe in these children with no cortex. Uh, the counter-argument to that would be, well, um, how do we know that they really are conscious? Which is why I told you about the patients with no prefrontal lobes and the patients with no insula, uh, because they can still report um, on their conscious states before I told you about what we observe mm-hmm. in kids with no cortex at all. But still we don't rely only on the lesion evidence. Um, these children have only a brain stem and yet they're emotionally responsive. That suggests that consciousness and feelings, you know, emotional feelings, uh, must be generated in the brainstem if the behavioral observations are correct. And so we can test that hypothesis by various methods, and we have. If you stimulate deep brainstem nuclei, you can generate intense emotional states mm-hmm. in patients who have a normal intact cortex, so they can report on what they're feeling. You stimulate those brainstem structures. You can generate feelings, really intense feelings of various kinds, as I report in in Mm. my book. Um, If you do positron emission tomography, that is functional neuroimaging, of the brain of normal people who are in the throes of intense emotional feelings, um, and you look where in the brain is the uh, activation that, that, you know, the metabolic activity that correlates with these emotional feelings, the, 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 the activation is in the brainstem, not in the cortex. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, one last line of evidence, um, which is pharmacological probes. Um, if you manipulate the neurotransmitters which are sourced in the brainstem, neurotransmitters like dopamine, serotonin, norepinephrine, um, histamine, acetylcholine, these, these neurotransmitters are sourced in the reticular activating system of the brainstem. Uh, these are the targets of everyday psychopharmacological um, treatments. Uh, you, know, you block dopamine to treat psychosis. You, you boost um, serotonin to treat depression. You block uh, norepinephrine to treat anxiety. So the, the chemicals uh, that we manipulate with these drugs are clearly emotion-generating chemicals. So all of these different converging lines of evidence suggest that um, the, the part of the brain that generates the basic sentient feeling being of the mind is located not in the cortex but the brainstem. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just the weight of history. Uh, as I said, I'm glad to go into the history of how we got to this wrong idea in the first place. Um, but that's perhaps a little bit boring. But the <laughs> empirical facts, as shocking as they are, surprising as they are, counterintuitive as they are, um, really are incontrovertible, that you can have consciousness without cortex um, and uh, that when you use all these other methods, uh, it all shows that the basic feeling, sentient being of the mind uh, is generated down there in the brainstem. In fact, I will just say one last thing mm-hmm. 
I told you that there can be no cortex at all and you see emotional responsivity. Conversely, damage as small as the size of a match head, two Mm. cubic millimeters, in a tiny, tiny, tiny lesion in the reticular activating system of the brainstem, reliably produces coma. Mm. So you can remove the cortex in in its entirety, the patient is still conscious, uh, but you remove the tiniest bit of the reticular activating system in the brainstem and the cortical lights go out. So it's clear that the consciousness that um, the cortex enjoys is in fact generated in the brainstem. The brainstem activates the cortex and thereby renders it conscious. Yeah, and for me that was such a, a paradigm shift because in, in all my years of studying psychology and neuroscience, the you know periaqueductal gray and the brainstem and these regions are always kind of background and thought of maybe as like a power source or they have these smaller functions and the cortex is where the real action is and what really matters. But as you describe in the book, it's really almost the other way around in a lot of ways. And that was really quite fascinating for me to, to see that after so long of seeing it a certain way. And I don't think the history would be boring, but I also know we have uh, time constraints. But it is interesting, again, to see in science when we see things in a certain lens and we might not even recognize the assumptions that we have, but it affects the ways we look at the evidence that is right in front of us. So uh, for me, that was quite fascinating. I think why the title of the book, The Hidden Spring, um, if makes sense because in a way it's been hidden. One, maybe it's in the brain stem, so that way it's hidden, or you can explain. I probably shouldn't d- describe that, but hidden to me that it was in plain sight, but we weren't paying enough attention to this source uh, of consciousness. That's right. And I, I, I want to emphasize that word, source, mm-hmm. um, because I don't wish to claim that consciousness as a whole happens in the brainstem. Uh, I'm saying that the brainstem is the source of the consciousness. Right. Uh, and it, as it were, um, you have to feel your way into your cognitions, mm-hmm. which, and cognitions are cortical processes. So those processes that happen in the cortex are very um, interesting and complicated and important things. Um, Uh, that are elaborations of consciousness, uh, but they are not intrinsically in themselves conscious processes. And one of the interesting ways to demonstrate this is the fact that we learned in the 1980s and 1990s, which is that the cortex uh, can perform all of these very same cognitive processes without consciousness. So the cortex is not an intrinsically conscious part of the brain. The cortex can perceive and learn in very complex ways, even so complex as to read with understanding, to recognize faces, to associate words with faces, and so on. All of these highly complex cortical, in fact, in the case of reading, uniquely human cortical Mm -hmm. cognitive functions, uh, all of them can be performed unconsciously, and it's easy to demonstrate that experimentally. For example, with the use of a tachistoscope, where you flash information just for a few milliseconds, so briefly that the person is not aware of having perceived anything, let alone it was a word but I couldn't make it out, or it was a face but I couldn't, you know, it was too quick. They they say, I've seen nothing, nothing happened. Uh, And yet you can show 
from their subsequent behavior, uh, that they have seen the face, they have read the word, they've associated the word with the face, it changes their attitude to that face mm-hmm. when they encounter it again later. You know, so, so the cortex can do all of these highly complicated cognitive things without consciousness. Um, and so the so-called organ of consciousness does exactly the same job when it's not conscious. Um, and uh, so this begs the question, well, what is the consciousness for? Which is exactly what led us to this famous hard problem of consciousness. Because that's the argument that David Chalmers, the philosopher who coined the hard problem, that's exactly the argument that he puts forth. He says that all uh, you can explain the mechanisms of cognition. You can explain by information, flow charts, or whatever you like, you know, how the cortex functions. But it doesn't explain why there's something it is like to see mm-hmm. or something it is like to draw up a memory into your uh, subjective mental experience. And um, that's entirely true. The cortex can do exactly those things. It can remember and perceive and learn and read and recognize faces and all of that without consciousness. And so studying the mechanisms whereby the cortex operates is never going to teach us um, why it feels like something. Hmm. Uh, and uh, the, 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 that does not apply to feelings. If you look at the part of the brain that generates the feelings, which is the brainstem, how can you understand the mechanism of feeling without explaining why it feels like something? Right. Because the whole point of feelings is to generate feelings. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and so I think that that, uh, that mistake that, that uh, error of us equating cortical cognitive functions with consciousness is also the source of this hard problem, or at least mm. it makes the hard problem look a hell of a lot harder <laughs> than it really is. Yeah, I, I think it's quite fascinating to see that the, the brainstem, and not just the brainstem, but feelings, and that's something that really is in a lot of the core of what you talk about in the book is feelings, as you just said, and how they are... I don't want to get in say something that might be too bold, but in the sense of they are almost the the reason for consciousness or what makes sense as far as experience goes of and why feelings even could exist or why they would exist. And in the book, there's really fascinating but also complex descriptions from the world of physics that apply to understanding the brain. And as you said, uh, taking the work that others have done further to see if we can actually study it in in the ways we study other other sciences, what the experience is to be human. Um, but after the break, we, we're at another commercial break, we could maybe talk about homeostasis and how this plays a role in this understanding of feelings and and what the, we experience um, and because I think that's a quite fascinating understanding of what what it means to be uh, our experiences like but why we would have feelings how can we can understand uh, the qualitative experience of feelings based on on this necessity uh, of homeostasis so uh, let's go to another commercial break again I'm joined by dr. Mark Solms we'll be right back Welcome back. Again, my guest today, Dr. Mark Solms, author of The Hidden Spring. Dr. Solms, are you still there? Yes. Oh, wonderful. So uh, as I mentioned before the break, in understanding the significance of of feelings, um, the concept of homeostasis 
comes into play, which maybe to some people we usually think of that for things like temperature and, and other things, which is a, a significant aspect of it and does play a role in it. But I was curious if you can explain that and how it fits into um, the, the theory or the information that you've brought forth in understanding the role that feelings play in consciousness. Sure. Um, so let me uh, introduce the term affect. Sure. Um, Emotions uh, are, are uh, this is a word that many people, most people are familiar with, but affect is a broader concept. It, it, emotions are, are a kind of affect. And what affects are, are feelings which have a goodness and a badness to them. And, mm -hmm. and uh, technically we call that valence. So um, most people don't think uh, of things like hunger and thirst and the need to urinate and sleepiness and so on. They don't think of them in the same category as emotions, but they are affects uh, in that it feels bad to be sleepy and it feels good to satisfy that need. It feels bad to be hungry and it feels good to satisfy that need. And the same with the need to urinate, the same with bodily pain, uh, etc. So these bodily feelings, these bodily affects, it's easier to explain homeostasis in relation to them mm -hmm. than in relation to emotions. So let me start with that. Sure. Um, you know, we, we, homeostasis, the, 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 the sort of grounding principle is that we living things, uh, we can't just uh, um, explore all possible physiological states. You can't just be at any old blood pressure mm -hmm. or any old body temperature or any old degree of hydration. There's a certain amount of water certain amount of oxygen, certain amount of salt, a certain amount of glucose, etc., that you have to have in your body. And if you deviate from the level that is compatible with life, you die. Uh, that's, so homeostasis is a mechanism that keeps you within your physiologically viable range. And affects, feelings like I am too hungry, that bad feeling, or I am too thirsty, or I am too hot, uh, all of those are indications to the organism, to the living creature, things are going wrong. You know, you're heading in the wrong direction. You're moving away from where you need to be um, in terms of your, your, your survivability. So that's what affects are for. They're moving away from your homeostatic set point, in other words, from your viable range, feels bad. Uh, and moving back towards your viable set point feels good. And what this does is it bestows on the organism an awareness of how it's doing in terms of its basic biological value system, which is that it's good to survive and it's bad to die. Uh, the way in which we know how we are doing is feelings. So negative and positive feelings tell you whether you're heading away or towards your homeostatic set point. That's how it works. Now, um, I told you that those are bodily affects and uh, we can now extend that principle to emotional affects. So things like, for example, fear, which is a well-known emotion, um, the set point for fear is I am not in danger. There's, there's nothing, there's no threat to life and limb. A deviation from that set point, just like from your set temperature range or your set um, uh, blood pressure or whatever, uh, a deviation from that is, is, is a risk to life. 
and you feel it with a particular unpleasant feeling called fear. It's not hunger, it's not thirst, it's not sleepiness, it's fear. But it works on the same basic principle. The further you move away from your set point, which is I am not in danger, the more that you are in danger, the more you feel fear, and the more intensely and urgently you have to do something about it. The same with rage. Mm -hmm. uh, rage, the set point for that emotion, is there are no frustrating obstacles impeding me, standing between, getting between me and what I need. Uh, if there is something impeding you, and you start to feel frustrated and irritated, and eventually you feel really angry, you know, and that's, that feeling, uh, that negative feeling, just like hunger or sleepiness, it, it is a deviation from your homeostatic set point. And these are not fluffy things, you know. Mm -hmm. To escape dangers and to get rid of frustrating um, uh, uh, obstacles, uh, competitors who are in your way, um, to, to the feeling of uh, uh, being close to an attachment figure. Uh, 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 the, the separation from an attachment figure is a, is a biological crisis for a mammal. We need to be looked after. Uh, we can't look after ourselves when we're little us mammals. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, feelings, emotional feelings uh, are biologically essential just as much as bodily feelings like hunger and thirst are. This is how we survive. Um, so that's the mechanism of all of the basic emotions. Um, and there are seven major basic emotions. I, I won't enumerate them all now, but I've given you three examples, I think, uh, in, in what I've just said. Uh, homeostasis is the mechanism whereby feelings are regulated. Negative feelings mean in relation to this particular need, I'm heading in the wrong direction. Positive feelings mean in relation to this particular need, I'm heading in the right direction. And this regulates all voluntary behavior. The purpose of feeling is so that you know how you're doing, here and now, so that you can make choices. Uh, if something feels bad, uh, then you avoid it. If something feels good, then you approach it. It means you don't need to understand all of the underlying physiology. Mm -hmm. All that the subject of the mind needs to know is this feels good and this feels bad. Um, and as we all know, if we, you know if, if, if we come down to it, this is what regulates our lives, you know, feelings. Mm -hmm. Feelings are what it's all about. Um, so my argument in the book uh, is that this is the bedrock of consciousness. In fact, the dawn of consciousness why consciousness evolved at all was so that us living organisms can know how we are doing in terms of this basic value system uh, which underwrites all life, which is that it's good to survive and bad not to. Mm -hmm. that, um, that feelings are the way in which we become aware of how well we're doing within that value system and uh, so that we can voluntarily act accordingly. In other words, not just have automatic reflexes, uh, but that we can make choices uh, based on how things are going for us. That's, that's what feeling does, and this seems to be um, the very foundation of why consciousness arose at all. And I don't mean foundation metaphorically. Uh, if you look at the brain anatomy, um, you know, the, the, as we were talking about earlier before the commercial break, uh, the, it, it is in the foundations of the brain in the brain stem, the reticular activating system and periaqueductal gray, that's where these homeostatic functions are performed. Uh, this is where these very primitive uh, ancient structures of the brain is where this foundational 
elemental, r- raw, uh, basic form of consciousness arises. And then everything else is built upon that. So all of these cognitive processes that we were also discussing before the commercial break, you know, we feel our way into those things. It's a, mm-hmm. as it were, I feel like this about that. And so consciousness is extended onto our perceptions and our cognitions. And I, I, I hope I hope that what I'm saying is clear. Oh, yes, I think it's, it's quite clear. And it, it feels good what you're saying, that it makes sense. I even think about that sometimes when we're understanding something. It gives you a feeling when it it makes sense. But the, I'll leave that aside. But, uh, yeah, that feelings are foundational. I enjoyed that part or that concept because I think feelings get a bad rap sometimes. People don't like feelings or they think feelings are not, we, we shouldn't care about feelings or even people use worse words than that in, in some of the phrasing of talking about feelings. But really that is the, the stuff of life and it's what's guiding everything else really comes after that or everything we do is in service of those feelings, even these cognitive functions to a degree we can say it's so that we can resolve those feelings when they come up to ensure or make it more likely that we survive uh, rather than the other way around that uh, you know the thinking comes first rather than the feeling and what's also i think important in the the feeling discussion is that you mentioned the valence that it feels good or bad but the quality has to also be there so that i know for example um, i'm thirsty versus i am you know i need air and so if without that qualitative function which also can be seen as an aspect of our conscious experience um, if i just knew i didn't feel good but didn't know what that not feeling good was uh, it would be harder for me to resolve that uh, bad feeling to get back to homeostasis that's a crucial point what you've just said now um let me let me just elaborate on that for, sure. for a moment because it is it is so fundamentally important. Uh, philosophers uh, who um, study the problem of consciousness they speak of qualia, which we, they're saying that the essential stuff of consciousness mm-hmm. is these these qualitative somethings like redness and blueness. It's a quality, um, and these qualia. Uh, are, are the are, are the problem that we are trying to resolve in the hard problem of consciousness? Why do these qualitative feelings arise? These the, this 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 um, non-quantitative stuff, this immaterial stuff uh, of, uh, of 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 the mind. And what you were saying there is is I believe um, the the route into addressing that question. Mm. Um, you you can't just say um, need is a continuous quantitative variable. Um, I I currently am experiencing three out of ten of fear, um, and I'm experiencing eight out of ten of sleepiness. Uh, therefore, I have a total of eleven out of twenty of total needs. Uh, if if it was just quantitative, uh, then under those circumstances, uh, the thing to do is to sleep. You know, you could say, okay, well, I'll reduce my total need by sleeping. Meanwhile, you might be attacked uh, the, because the three out of 10 of fear uh, was, had to do with an approaching predator. So what, what I'm uh, leading up to is that each need has to be addressed in its own right. They can't all be summated to one common quantitative denominator. They need to 
they need to be treated as categorical variables, as we put it in statistics. Categorical variables, as opposed to continuous variables, are distinguished qualitatively. So that feeling bad in the sense of I'm hungry and feeling bad in the sense of I'm sleepy, uh, as opposed to I'm, I'm anxious, as opposed to I'm angry, you know, each one of those points to a different need um, and you need to know which one of your needs uh, is, is currently uh, being uh, uh, banging on the door, as it mm-hmm. were, because you need to do very different things in order to meet those needs. They need to be distinguished from each other qualitatively. Great. And that, to my mind, is, is, is it, it sort of requires the, introduce, the introduction of qualitative variables into the life of the mind. Uh, th- th- that's why I think that that point that you just made is so terribly important. But the other thing that you said, you said feelings get a bad rap, <laughs> um, you know, and, and we prefer uh, to think of cognitions um, as the, you know, the real kind of deal. Uh, I, I've never quite understood why <laughs> that is the case. Um, but the, 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 the really paradoxical uh, fact of the matter is that once we understand that feelings are governed by this simple mechanism that I mentioned earlier, called, that you mentioned earlier too, called homeostasis. Um, the, 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 the homeostasis is not something complicated. You know, it's a fairly simple mechanism. A deviation from a set point, that's an error signal. Uh, you need to minimize that error signal, and so you need to perform work to get yourself back to the set point. Mm-hmm. You know, that's not complicated. It's a very simple causal mechanism. Uh, unlike cognition, which is all over the place, um, this is something entirely tractable uh, by the laws of physical science. It's not hard to write an equation that describes how homeostasis works. Right. And so feeling, which gets this bad rap, turns out to be the aspect of mental life that is probably most readily uh, reducible to physical laws mm-hmm. um, and, uh, and because as I'm arguing feelings are the foundational elemental sort of um, uh, rudimentary form of con- the, 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 the essential basis of all consciousness uh, by reducing consciousness down to this elemental form uh, which, which obeys homeostatic laws um, ironically uh, we are able to do much harder science um, mm. on consciousness than we could have if we had tried to do the same thing with cognition. Yeah, and, and in the book you get into that with um, the work you've done with, I think, Carl Friston uh, uh, related to that, looking at it more actually quantitatively. But going back to what you're saying about feelings and, and the way they're viewed, I, I, it's funny because sometimes people will talk about, you know, I don't care about feelings, but I care about, let's say, making money. Uh, and some of it, I wonder if it's that that's more quantifiable. Of course, again, the research you're doing makes it more quantifiable, the feeling aspect. Um, but what I always tell people is, okay, you make a lot of money. And at the end, it's to because it makes you feel good. Now, at first, maybe there's the security it gives you, but there's something about making a lot of money that feels good to you. So you might think it has nothing to do with feelings, but at the end of it, it always is going to come back to feeling because that's what our experience is all about. And so I think it's funny when people try to remove that. Uh, And even I wonder if some of it is also this human exceptionalism that feeling is more basic, but then we're advanced and we think, and that's the part that makes us human. And so I'm more that way than the, the weaker animal side 
side of things when really we're just uh, organisms like any other. I actually think it's, I forgot whose research it was, but you said that he was accused of anthropomorphizing animals and he said no i'm zoomorphizing humans or i'm saying we're basically like all all the other creatures there's not these ba big distinctions we'd like to put between us and them uh, we are all uh, a, a them or all a us uh, rather than making that distinction I, I wanted to hear your thoughts on um you know when i when I, when you talk about homeostasis when we're talking about feelings it, it made me think about when let's say someone is sad or especially if uh, you know, a parent sees their child is sad. And so we can see they're far away from that set point of, I don't know what it would be for sadness, um, but th they're far away from that. And parents sometimes, and we do this with ourselves, they try to rush their kid back to feeling good. And what I like about the homeostasis argument is, or, or the paradigm is if you look at, let's say temperature, if someone has hypothermia and they're really cold, you can't make them hot immediately it's going to take some time and so when i work with parents at times before i thought of it in this type of way i would say you know you're kind of warming them back up to some you know set point or some feeling good uh, but we can't really rush that in in some ways to get back to it so i don't know if that what you think about that or if you see feelings in that way where getting back to homeostasis it does take some time usually for feeling big feelings well, that's correct. So uh, what a feeling is, um, if I can reduce it again to the sort of mechanistic laws underpinning homeostasis, mm -hmm. it's a error signal, which is a demand for work. Uh, it means, you know, something's gone wrong. Uh, you need to perform work to get it right again. And work is work. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not um, the, 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 the very basic bodily functions like blood pressure regulation and respiratory control and so on. Their simple automatic reflexes can rectify things. But the very reason that we have feelings is because we're dealing with much more uncertain things when it comes to the complexities, for example, of emotions. Uh, there's no one simple, predictable, um, reliable, automatic solution to life's problems. Um, and so, you know, the work that needs to be done to get us back to our viable range to where we need to be um, you know you you really this is the great task of life actually for it mm -hmm. the great task of life is learning how to meet these needs mm -hmm. and it's complicated um, and there's you know there's there's many uh, a, a slip between cup and lip as they say <laughs> you know uh, and trial uh, only by trial and error and does this work does that work uh, you know it's really difficult um, so the work required uh, to get ourselves into our emotionally viable ranges is not to be sneezed at. Mm -hmm. it's, uh, and I think the same applies, you're speaking of parenting and correctly so, but I think the same applies to psychotherapy. Mm -hmm. You know, people who think that you can just rectify emotional problems with a few sessions and a quick fix, they just don't understand you know, how it works. Uh, these are mm -hmm. complicated things and it takes time. Yeah. To, to, to regulate them. And, and we must, one last point, we must remember it's not only each one of our feelings, our emotional needs that have to be met. We also have to reconcile them all with each other. Right. They can conflict with each other you know, so that you might love your mum and want her to stay with you forever and always. That's your attachment need. Mm -hmm. um, but you, know, you also get irritated by your mum. She also frustrates you. Uh, and that's that's your aggressive need. 
Mm-hmm. So there you have a conflict. You know, you, on the one hand, you want to keep her with you forever and always. On the other hand, you want to get rid of this frustrating uh, impediment. And they're the same person. Mm-hmm. You know, and so you know, there you have conflict. There you have guilt. Um, and there you have all the complexities of, of, of emotional life. I just, um, I, I, I want to appeal to, if I've understood you correctly, uh, to, to our listeners, uh, to, to, to uh, recognize the truth of what you've said, that in order to meet emotional needs is difficult. You know, learning how to meet emotional needs is difficult. The processes are slow, but my word, it's worth it. Yep. And really, as you've in a way shared, that's that's what it's all about. What life really is about is resolving uh, all of uh, all of those needs. And I think one of the challenges, as you uh, expressed, of being human is we have so many of these these needs, and they create also dilemmas because at moments they can feel at ends with one another. And I think that's what makes life so complex: needs for closeness, but also needs for space. Wanting to feel secure, so you want to be close with someone, but also you can get, as you said, frustrated when we're closer and around uh, someone, let's say, you know, for a long time. And I think that makes life so challenging is that there are so many of these needs that uh, because of our experience, if we only had a few, it would be a lot easier. But there are so many um, that we try to balance and meet in different ways that makes life uh, very difficult. Um, and I also, going back to the, the homeostasis argument or concept, I think one of the signs of mental health I've talked about is distress tolerance or our ability at times to tolerate things you know actually which basically make us out of homeostasis in the sense that we don't want, need to quickly do something to resolve that feeling going to what we might call unhealthy coping mechanisms so i think it's actually an interesting thing the drive is towards resolving that that you know going back to homeostasis but i think some signs of mental health require us to be able to tolerate those levels of of not being in homeostasis i'm not sure what you think about that well, I absolutely agree with that. The, let's take it to the extreme example. Um, so I spoke earlier about us needing caregivers. We need, we need people to love us and look after us, us mm-hmm. mammals. Um, and the brain chemical that mediates that need uh, is opioids, mu opioids, the endorphins. And um, so when you are loved and supported and cared for and your caregivers and loved ones are close to you, you have high mu opioid levels in the brain. And conversely, when you become separated from um, uh, or, or lose uh, those, those uh, caring attachment objects, uh, then you have low mu opioid levels in the brain. So what do you do if you have low mu opioid levels? You know, what you need to do is find do all the work that's necessary to re-establish that connection, mm-hmm. to, 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 to fix the separation, you know, to establish reunion. And this is difficult, you know, getting people, the people who we want to look after us and pay attention to us and think about us and care for us, you know, we can't make them do that. It's a skill <laughs> that you have to acquire. You have to take account of their needs. You have to think about it, work it out, negotiate it. All of that is really hard work. That's the sort of thing that we're talking about. There's an alternative route, which is you can just take an opiate drug. Mm-hmm. That will increase your opioid levels immediately. Um, so that's a quick fix. Uh, and uh, this is not a small issue that we're talking about. This is a great scourge of our times. Mm-hmm. 
you know, that, uh, that we, we're looking for these sorts of quick fixes rather than doing the work that's, that's, that's actually necessary uh, yeah. in order to really meet our needs. Because please note it's a big mistake uh, to create the feeling artificially and quickly without actually doing the work in the outside world. Mm. Uh, it, it doesn't meet the underlying need. Uh, the underlying need is we need to be loved and looked after for good biological reasons. We can't exist as islands by ourselves. Uh, you know, we are social beings, uh, human beings, primates, mammals, we are social animals. Uh, and there's a whole long lot of stories about why that is the case. If you short circuit or hijack the circuits uh, of your brain uh, to create the illusion um, that you've solved the problem without actually solving the problem um, is biologically really dangerous. Mm -hmm. In the end, opiates will kill you um, and and uh, attachment figures will look after you really. And so, you know, as I said, yeah. I'm giving an extreme example of the principle that we're talking about. But um, I could take it one step further, which may be a little controversial, but I'll say it anyway. You know, the same applies to psychopathology, to psychiatric difficulties. Uh, it's easy to take a drug, you know, which treats the symptom, mm -hmm. but it doesn't really solve the problem. Psychotherapy is hard work, but that actually solves the problem. It actually enables the patient to find a better way to meet their emotional needs rather than just deal with the symptoms, with mm -hmm. the feelings that arise from not them. Yeah, and well, you're speaking to a psychologist and a psychotherapist, so to me that felt quite good, but I could see how it could be controversial uh, to some, And but I think the point is a very important one to keep in mind that, uh, you know, we can understand that drive even, okay, we're supposed to want to go back to that homeostasis, so the drive can be there, or that pull can even be there, but at times we have to, I don't want to say resist it, but at least resist the urge to so quickly resolve it in ways that might be unhealthy. And I think even when we talk about unhealthy coping versus healthy coping mechanism, in a way we're looking at unhealthy trying to get back to homeostasis versus healthier forms of doing that. And the healthier ones usually act more slowly, um, but uh, you know don't have some negative consequences as the unhealthy ones can have, which of course makes it quite important. What I also think is interesting when I think of the theories that or the, the the ideas you share in the book and also you know looking at the brain as a predictive machine um, when we think of things like childhood experience yeah, I, I would always have a hard time trying to make sense of well how do things before you can even remember them in infancy how might that affect you but when we see that the brain is making these predictions constantly we could see that if you as a baby did not get let's say your needs met or experience stress those those it's not quite memory but maybe in a way it is will be embedded in your brain physiology and how you will then respond to the world so it can make sense that if you didn't experience that care as an infant you might be less trusting as you um, get older and so Erickson's trust versus mistrust for example from zero to one it can make sense in this way that how would that get if you want to call it encoded into the brain of the infant and they would carry that forward uh, to me it made it make more sense I hope I'm making sense in what I just said but I'm not sure if you have any thoughts on that yes um, I do and you are making sense. <laughs> so, you know, let me again, for the sake of clarity, uh, be really simple about it. We've been talking mainly about feelings, mm -hmm. and feelings are 
um, they're symptomatic of needs. In other words, the feelings mean something. Right. Um, if, if you're having a bad feeling, it means there's a need that's not being met. Those needs are demands made upon the mind to perform work in the way that we've been discussing. Now, that's affect, that's feeling. The other side of the coin is cognition, mm -hmm. is, the, is the learning how to meet those needs. That's what cognition is for. Uh, cognition isn't just something that we have because we, you know, it's nice to have it. Uh, the, the only reason that we need to learn uh, to represent and learn about how the world works, all of our knowledge, and um, uh, everything that goes under the heading of cognition, is learning how to meet our needs in the world. Cognition is in the service um, mm -hmm. of, of affects, uh, as we've been discussing on and off throughout this conversation. So the bedrock of cognition is learning how to meet your needs. Now you say, maybe it's not memory as such, but it is. Mm -hmm. uh, memory, memory is about, memories are about the past, but they're for the future. Mm -hmm. The whole point of learning from experience is prediction. Uh, it, on the basis of what happened in the past, um, I don't need to reinvent that wheel. I now know from past experience, this is what's likely to happen if I do this, and this is what's likely to happen if I do that. So memories are fundamentally about prediction, uh, predicting how to meet our needs in the world. Uh, the, the bringing of memories to mind, the conscious reminiscing, um, we, we, that sort of clouds our perception of what memory really is. It's a very small fraction of, of the memory systems in the brain that we're actually able to bring the memory, replay it like a movie in our heads. That's a tiny portion of, of, of our, what our memories, how our memory systems work. Mm -hmm. uh, the vast bulk of our memory systems are simply, as you use that phrase, prediction machines. Uh, when I'm in this state of need, that's what I do. I've learned from experience that that need gets met by doing this. That's what memory is for, that's how memory works. The fact that in the very earliest years of life, we lay down our first foundational predictions um, you know, the, is not unimportant. Everything else, so we're born with instincts, instinctual predictions. When I'm in danger, I must freeze or I must flee. That's an instinctual response. When I'm frustrated or enraged, I must attack and destroy the bastard. You know, these are instinctual responses. They are very crude and blunt instruments. Uh, that you, you can't rely only on those. You need to learn um, what else to do. Uh, the whole process of learning is in order to supplement our instincts with more flexible, nuanced, context-dependent uh, responses. And you lay down the very first ones in your earliest childhood, how to meet your needs. And they become the sort of uh, the one step above instincts. Your next go-to response are these early stereotyped uh, ch uh, ch ch childhood uh, 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 predictions acquired in childhood and a, a crucial issue there is that I've said a moment ago we have multiple memory systems only one or two of which actually generate memories that we can experience the vast bulk of them just generate response patterns mm -hmm. and uh, the, the, the memory systems that are operational in the first two to three years of life are only of the latter kind so everything that you lay down in the first two to three years of life 
is in the nature of an automatic response pattern, which means you can't reflect on it. You can't bring it to mind. You can't remember where it came from and why you're doing what you're doing and adjust accordingly. Uh, so those early childhood experiences are absolutely pivotal. This is not some sort of Freudian ideology <laughs> to go back to the very beginning of our conversation. Yeah. It is simply how the brain works. And yeah, and I didn't mean to interrupt you. I'm looking at the time, and I, I know I, I, I tried to promise you to get you uh, off before uh, off the air before 30 past the hour. Um, but I think as you were speaking, I was uh, I was actually thinking just that that so much of the psychological processes that we talk about can be explained or understood better with that paradigm of why would we seek out, for example, certain relationships or people from our past might make it more likely that we even are attracted to someone like our parents, for example which sounds kind of cliche and funny in a way, but it can make more sense when you have this paradigm to see it through that if you experience something and that felt familiar and comfortable, you might feel more familiar and comfortable or drawn towards that as well. But uh, lots of thoughts on that, which I'll have to um, share for another time or keep for another time. Uh, but Dr. Solms, thank you sh so much for the work you're doing and also especially for joining me today on the show. Uh, it, it was a pleasure talking with you. Thank you. Thank you. It was a great pleasure talking to you, too. Uh, there, there are a few things more interesting than this subject matter, so I, I really love talking about it. Oh. <laughs> I don't know why anyone talks about anything else. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. I couldn't agree with you more. That was uh, I, I enjoyed this so much, and we'll continue thinking about it. But, again, I appreciate you taking the time and the work that you're doing. It was an honor to have you on the air. Thank you. Thank have, you very much. Have a wonderful evening. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You, too. Thank you. All right, let's go to a commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. A uh, big, big thank you to Dr. Mark Solms, who joined me on the show today. He's the author of the book, The Hidden Spring, A Journey to the Source of Consciousness. Um, and I highly recommend you read the book. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. I really did to get to hear his thoughts. But the book, of course, can go into much more detail in outlining uh, the history and the arguments that and the evidence for the arguments that he makes about consciousness and so um, as he discussed and as it came up in the conversation feelings are really what it's all about when we look at what the human experience is um, which in a way might not be that surprising when we think of how we experience life it's what you feel that is really the the biggest aspect of that and as I shared uh, with him and wanted to hear his thoughts about the homeostasis that we try to get back to with our feelings and that actually, even though the drive is to get back to that place that we feel what feels like okay when there isn't a prediction error in, in how we're feeling versus how we'd like to feel essentially, um, that's what we want to get to, which makes sense and that drive is there. But as I shared with him, I do think one of the aspects of mental health, I've talked about this phrase or this concept of distress tolerance or our ability to be uh, not feel good and to stay with that not feeling good. So again, the, the urge is going to be to get away from it. And it's not to say that we should try to feel bad either, but to recognize that part of life and life experience involves not feeling good sometimes, and that is okay. And sometimes we have this notion, uh, when we think of being happy, we think, well, I'm always going to feel good. And we can understand that. And even from a uh, biological evolutionary perspective, it makes sense to want to always feel good because that's telling you you're doing 
good, doing well, surviving, uh, thriving, and potentially able to reproduce if you're feeling good. So uh, that does make sense. But in order to live a good life, we have to be able to tolerate not feeling good at times. And I think even we can uh, incorporate this type of mindset when we look at things like delaying gratification. Uh, which makes sense gratification it's gratifying in the moment and so the drive in general is to feel good in the moment and that's what makes it hard i think when we try to do something that won't feel good now but will feel bad will feel good later i think it's hard for us or, or it's harder to create that and and actually i was curious to hear dr solmes's thoughts on this but i was thinking of when we plan a goal or we want to do something what we try to do is get a feeling about what it means either to get to that goal, but especially to achieve it, but even the process of it that might feel good. So I think about, uh, you know, if I finish this book, let's say, it'll feel good or I, I'll want to be prepared for the show next Monday. So that's a feeling. So I, I th use these types of thoughts or this way of bringing up what, what's like a memory, but it's a memory of the future to get me to feel something even maybe I feel some anxiety that drives me that okay I should get this done if I don't it won't be good and what is that going to feel like but we essentially have to override the feeling in the moment which is usually much more present of course because we're in that moment and try to override it with thinking of a feeling or somehow bringing up a feeling of the future which I think always is going to be at a disadvantage a future feeling or trying to bring up a future feeling versus what we feel in the moment and this is what makes it so hard for each and every one of us we know that we don't always do what's in our best interests long term we know we can uh, eat better exercise do certain things not waste time in certain ways and do a whole host of other things or not do certain things but it is hard we always say oh, okay i want to exercise more but it's hard um, to get started but then you know we, we we try to push ourselves and that's why it does take some pushing to get away from that inertia towards what feels like homeostasis or even it can make sense with exercise if we think of ourselves as physical beings that need to conserve energy or be aware of our energy usage usually i think it'll make sense to not want to expend energy from a purely biological type of a perspective or experience so it makes sense that you wouldn't want to do that it does take some pressure from yourself or some type of motivation to, to make that happen actually the book of the week for this week that I'll talk about Monday is Atomic Habits is all about building habits. And I think actually this ties into also this discussion or concepts of the brain as a predicting machine, because if you can create habits, first of all, if you create the environment that makes it more likely that you do certain things so you can, let's say, see your exercise equipment or you put your running shoes uh, outside the door or right in front of your door so you have to see them. Um, that itself can trigger doing the behaviors and also the more you do them you start to expect it to happen again too right so you probably have felt this that if you haven't exercised in a while it's hard to do it once you start doing it regularly you almost feel like you need to do it you, you need to to get started on that so if you've been let's say running every morning it's hard to build that habit but once you do it you might feel this almost need that I, I need to run I need to get out there so it's interesting that we can use some of those things in our favor that if we create habits and create that expectation that something will be done it does make it a lot easier to get it done but overall there is this experience we're going to have that the feelings in the moment uh, 
um, are going to feel a lot stronger than some feeling about the future and what's going to happen. And we have to do and put some effort into to overcoming that. And so this goes back to this sense that we have to be able to tolerate not feeling good in order to live a good life, which can seem counterintuitive. Shouldn't I try to feel good? Um, yes, but unfortunately, if you just do what feels good in the moment, you actually won't live a good life. And especially this also brings up some issues that we are not necessarily living or we definitely are not living in the environment that our brains and bodies adapted to. And so within this concept of exercise and also diet, there is a reason why certain foods taste good to us. And this also can be like a feeling. It tastes good. We have a good pleasurable experience of some of those foods. Usually they are foods that we didn't have a lot of access to and they are high in calories for exactly the reason that we used to have issues finding enough calories. So it'd be good that when you encountered something that was high in calories, you would want to eat more of it because you'd want to be able to store up on that because you didn't know when you would get to have uh, calories again or be able to take care of yourself. And so that's why we, you know, we can bemoan that now. People say, why do all the things that taste good have to be bad for me? Uh, well, that's kind of part of the reason why is that those fatty foods, salty foods, sweet foods, they uh, are, are not good for you. Precisely, that's why your body wanted to get more of them to store it because it knew it was higher calorie. So it's hard to override some of that. So we do live in a world that doesn't exactly, doesn't match what we evolved to live in. And so that makes it tough that if you just did what feels good in the moment and even think about that in this hedonistic way, uh, first of all, you probably won't live very long and you won't live a, a really good life and, and that you'd want to live. So delaying gratification, we do think of it as just this, okay, if you want to be, you know, study or do certain things, you need to do that. But really it's a part of life that we're always grappling with putting away what feels good in the moment, or at least sometimes, doesn't mean we always do that. Of course, it doesn't mean always delay gratification. We also need to enjoy life and enjoy things in the moment as well. Um, but to really live a healthy, happy, meaningful life and happy in the sense of con content with our life, we're going to need to, at times, put away what feels good in the moment. But when we look at these issues of homeostasis, we can understand why that is hard. If you don't feel good in the moment, there's a strong pull towards making yourself feel good in the moment. But we sometimes have to be able to override that. Let's go into our last commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So um, I'm going to just end the discussion on the show about um, this topic of, of feelings, because uh, as, as I got to discuss with Dr. Mark Solms, author of The Hidden Spring, we were saying how this is in some ways the stuff of life, what life is all about. And so I thought it could be good to conclude today when we're talking about what we should do with our life, what we should do with our time. Uh, when we see that feelings is really what we're, what experience is, what life is really about, I would hope that that makes people think that we want to devote our life to helping other people feel better to take care of them. It doesn't mean just, I mean, emotionally, but overall, how can we make make people feel better? And even I would extend that, that it includes all living beings. And he does share some of this in the book. And I made a comment about one of the jokes that comes up from one of the researchers that he has collaborated with. Um, but that it's hard to deny when we understand consciousness in the ways that it's described in the book. And when we look at the evidence to not think of animals as being conscious 
uh, that they are, they're feeling something too. So we do like to justify even as a way of probably getting away from this bad feeling. We want to get back to homeostasis to say, oh, there's, you know, maybe animals don't feel anything or they feel something so different or it's not really, you know, they might even make a sound, but it doesn't mean they're hurting in some way if we're hurting them or killing them. Uh, but we really should recognize there's not a lot of weight to those arguments that it doesn't really make sense when we look at the structures of the brain. And a lot of the, the research that also comes up in the book is related to research that has been done looking at animals, studying animals. We see that uh, they're, they're similar structures to what we have. So, yes, we can just try to comfort ourselves by saying, oh, it's something very different than what we experience. They don't feel the same things, but they're, they're feeling. And I think anyone that has interacted with the animals, you can see that feeling. People have dogs or have pets and they interact with them in a way that you, you can feel they're, they're feeling something. Now, we can never know what it's like to be another being. And even with humans, there's this thing called the problem of other minds that you don't really know. You know, you might think me and you are looking at the same color red, but we don't know if I'm experiencing it the same way as you, or as sometimes they say, maybe what I see as red, you see as blue and vice versa. Um, but we, at some level, in order to be able to study these things or even talk about them, we have to make some, if you want to call it a leap of faith, that when we describe our experiences, there's something similar there that we can talk about or else we really can't study these things at all. We can't even study what what consciousness is if we're not sure that people are experiencing something at all. Um, but, you know, that the fact that animals feel things, I think, is uh, undeniable and we should keep that in mind. And then, of course, when it comes to people that they're they're feeling and that's what life is all about. And so to me, it does bring up this mindset that shouldn't that be our focus helping each other feel better when we and we definitely can in so many ways so of course emotionally we can be there for each other and feelings matter as as we got to discuss there is this way that feelings are sometimes looked at as not as important or significant that they're something small but really that's what life is all about everything we do is in the service of our feelings and everything you think you're doing just for a purely logical reason you're doing because of feelings. Even I think it's funny that people, when they talk about being so rational, why do they want to tell others that they're so rational? Because it feels good to be seen in that way. So they feel good about being seen that way. The social part of being seen in a certain way gives us a feeling or we want to be um, seen in a favorable light by others because that has benefits to us those feelings are guiding us again so it's it's interesting or almost funny to me when people talk about being so rational and especially telling people that they're so rational that they're doing it because it feels good so even in what they're saying they betray their own statement it's almost an oxymoron because they of course are talking about it because it feels good or even to tell themselves that this is how they are makes them feel good so I think recognizing the significance of feeling in our life can be really important to, to realize how we approach ourselves and what we're going through and how we deal with others. And I mentioned in the previous segment, so I don't mean, well, just care about your feelings. Do whatever feels right to you all the time, no matter what. Don't think about anything else. I don't agree with that. Um, I've actually talked about this before reading this book. 
that our feelings are information. So they're telling you something. And so if we look at what the book is telling us, we can understand that even more deeply. But they tell you something, you know, you're angry, you're sad, uh, whatever it is that you feel, it's information. It doesn't mean you have to just immediately act on that type of information or that impulse or whatever comes up. But it does tell you something. And now you choose what to do with that feeling. And that's where the the um, cognition can come into play. You can choose what you, how you act on that. And also what I talked about in the previous segment, being able to tolerate not feeling good is, is necessary at times. So you might get angry and the reaction to that anger is to hurt the person that is uh, making you feel angry or whatever is frustrating you. Um, but it doesn't mean you can just act on it in whatever way you want. So you can hear the feeling, understand the feeling, and then choose to, to act on it on a particular way. But I do want to just emphasize or uh, just give this type of a th- mindset. I hope that we can recognize that really that's what life is about. The experiences we have giving people good feelings in the sense of emotions, but also how we take care of one another. If someone's suffering, let's see how we can help them. If someone is hurting, can we be a source of giving them comfort, bringing them to that homeostasis, that good feeling that that we're all looking for. And with our loved ones, especially to focus on that, that that's what it's all about. Why are we even connected to each other? We, We support each other, we help each other, but it's really to make each other feel good. We are social beings. And so we feel good when we're around each other. We feel bad when we're separated or when we're hurt by one another. We have that. And that's all we're experiencing so and i work with couples and they say oh they're you know my partner's too sensitive they get hurt um too easily well if they're hurt i would hope that that is so meaningful to you that you want to do something about it or make sure you uh don't hurt them again or if you can make them feel better do something about it and actually what's probably happening there and this is where things get even more complex is you know your partner has their feelings and then you have feelings about their feelings right so they're hurt And you don't want to be thought that you did something wrong or that you're a bad partner or a bad person. So you might not want to acknowledge that they're hurt by you. So it's not my fault. It's your fault. Why are you doing that? It's because of feelings. It doesn't feel good to, you know, be wrong or doesn't feel good uh, to think you were a bad partner or did something wrong. It's easier for you to blame them. That feels better. So it's just to recognize as much as we might think feelings don't impact our lives or we're just thinking in a rational logical way i can assure you you're not feelings are constantly guiding everything you do they're constantly there Uh, and to think that my partner's feelings or others feelings are not important that's almost the only thing that really matters in this world and by feelings i don't just mean emotions but how people feel that's what life is essentially this consciousness is series of feeling states that we are in and if we can do anything to make others feel better. I think that's, to me, one of the purposes and meanings of life, especially when we can take care of ourselves in general, we can be okay and survive. Uh, Then what we have on top of that, we can hopefully help make others feel better. And the good news is that will make you feel better in return as well. So that brings us to the end of today's show. Again, a big thank you to Dr. Mark Solms. Please read his book, The Hidden Spring. I thoroughly enjoyed it, and I hope you will too. Uh, And also a big thank you to Ghazala here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delakwi. Have a wonderful day. (music) 